Art on your sleeve. Hello and welcome to episode two of Art on Your Sleeve. In this episode, I interview Lawrence Stevens, who is the graphic designer behind almost all of the work for the Eurythmics and Annie Lennox, along with dozens of other artists, including Bananarama, Shakespeare's Sister, Kissing the Pink, Eighth Wonder, Scarlet Fantastic, Fairground Attraction, Sleeper, Gene, Muse. I could go on listing them, but uh, that would be the whole episode. Um, You can read about the work of Lawrence in the current issue of Classic Pop magazine, that's issue number 26, the one with Bross on the cover. Uh, But in this interview we cover certain things that weren't covered in the article and go deeper into some of the subjects. I'd like to thank Lawrence for his time. Um, I did actually visit him at his studio in London and we spent a couple of hours talking about design and the music industry and unfortunately due to technical issues, very annoying technical issues, none of that footage was usable. Uh, so we recreated the interview via FaceTime. Um, so thank you for your patience, Lawrence. Uh, you're an absolute star and uh, it's been great getting to know you and learning more about the work that you've done over the last three three or more decades. <laughs> The avant-garde sounds you can hear playing in the background are actually the very first self-released single by Blamange, who went on to become quite a famous pop act in the 80s. Lawrence Stevens was originally a member of the band uh, and went to art school with Neil Arthur. Um, I started off the interview by asking him about how he got into the industry and about his work with Blamange. Um, through my kind of early years, I was um, always in bands and particularly punk bands in that mid 70s, 75, 76 period. Um, and at Sixth Form College, I was you know very lucky to be at college with Marco Peroni. So I used to hang out with him and was in a number of different bands that we kind of put together and we used to support the punk band that he was in called The Models. Um, we did a few gigs with him and I was in a band called The Framed and then I left Sixth Form College and went and did a year's foundation at Harrow Art College uh, just to kind of find out what kind of, uh, you know, what creative side or art side I was I was going to, uh, you know, proceed with my kind of education. And, um, and I was very interested in, you know, graphics and marketing and the whole promotional side of bands, even at that, you know, 18 and 19, although I was in, in groups, it was always, you know, I would design the flyers and, yeah. you know, really push that out and work out, you know, you know, argue with the other band members what we were going to wear, and it was all quite important to me, you know. So, um, and I got to, to Harrow and Harrow Art College at the time. Um, the Harrow Student Union was a was a big kind of gig on the circuit, really. So, you know, most of the um, the kind of new wave bands, you know, end of punk, post punk bands used to play there. And uh, and I met Neil Arthur, who was in his uh, first year of an illustration degree at Harrow. Um, I used to hang out in the you know the second floor, met up with him. And um, I formed a band with him called L360, which then became Blamange. It kind of blended into Blamange, which was slightly more electronic, um, with the kind of European and craftwork influences that we all kind of loved at that point. So we, you know, we had great time. We used to, you know, play some really cool, cool gigs and stuff. And then I, I applied to get into the um, graphic design degree at LCP and just got in. I was very lucky. I had an interview and they accepted me. Um, so really, you know, Neil was very keen to push the band forward because he was at that point then coming to the end of his, he was in his third year at illustration. So he was going to do the music, you know, so 
so it was just you know the history was I left and then they um, continued with Vermondia within four to six months they got a deal with London Records and had um, released Living on the Ceiling so I was you know in my first year studying and they were on top of the pop so it was yeah. a bit kind of like ah crikey but <laughs> but um but it was fantastic you know it was a great great kind of period you know so um I remember when I when I, I left there was a little kind of review which actually features in a kind of famous punk new wave kind of listing book called Up Yours and um, it said that you know the day I'd left as an original member and it said that Lawrence Stevens was replaced by a drum machine which I always thought was fantastic you know so quite quickly, Blumange went on to bigger things, but so did you. This was around the time, I think, that you got your first work working with Dave Stewart and Annie Lennox as the Eurythmics on the cover of Love is a Stranger, wasn't it? Yeah, I was really lucky in my, um, you know, third year, I was, uh, you know, a lot of people were applying for the Royal College and stuff, but I didn't, I really honestly didn't think I would, I would get in. I was just desperate to get out there and work, you know, you know, Malcolm and Neville and Peter, who were all our kind of, you know, maybe not heroes at that point, but the, you know, the people that you aspired to were out there doing it. And that's what, you know, I remember showing my Angus, my typographic tutor saying, you know, this is the kind of stuff I want to do. Cause I was doing, you know, I was tearing up letter forms and mixing typefaces and fonts at, at college. And he just couldn't get his head around it. He was, why are you doing this? You know, why are you mixing Bodoni and Helvetica and Universe together? You know, and I would show him, show him Neville's, you know, spreads from the face or, you know, uh, socialist magazine and you know city limits that he, they'd all done and uh, he just couldn't understand it and I said but this is this is out there now this is in the commercial world you know this is the kind of next wave and this is what I want to do you know well I was uh, not really getting much feedback because I was seeing the art directors in the um, the record companies and they would just say yeah this stuff's you know it's great but once we get something that we think you're suitable for we'll let you know kind of thing you know so and I can't you know um I kind of realised that wasn't going to happen, you know, because obviously if they were going to get something that was new or serious, they were going to do it themselves, you know, unless they were going to get Malcolm or, you know, Neville or Peter to do it. So um, so I just felt I needed to get, if I could get to the bands, you know, because I, you know, I kind of understood how bands worked and, you know, being in bands and hanging around with them. So um, so I managed, I don't, you know, in those days you could just walk into companies, you know, record labels, you know, you can't obviously do that now, but... And I got, you know, the receptionist would know me and just say, oh, you know, morning, Lawrence, you know, how are you, blah, 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 and up, up you go. And I, I just, they just thought I was just going back into the art department. But uh, yeah, I went I went to the fourth floor, which is where the A&R department was, and just um, hung out there. It was kind of open plan. Everyone had, you know, small little offices. And, and I just thought if I could see the head of A&R, who, you know, who gets to see the bands before they go to the third floor, which is where the art department was, you know, it all sounds a bit kind of complicated. But I had thought about it. And I just, it was just fortuitous. I just, you know, was sitting outside of Jack's office, who was the head of AR at the time. And um, he came out and said, you know, hi, who are you? And I just, you know, explained, you know, I had my portfolio with me and my sketchbooks and stuff. And he said, oh, okay, well, I, you know, I've, if you want to show your work now, let's just do it. You know, it was really one of those kind of things, you know. Um, <clears throat> and it was just, you know, it was a Tuesday morning, and I remember, and he just said, well, I've got, you know, Dave and Annie from the tourists here and they've got a new band together and because obviously I wasn't really aware of the Eurythmics at the time but I knew the tourists yeah. and um, so I went in met both of them showed them my work and we got on and they just said well okay we've got a single coming out in it was literally like you know two two or three weeks which was Love is a Stranger and um, which was the final kind of first single of the whole Sweet Dreams uh, 
vibe and the album they were then were going to release later. So, um, so I went away and just put some ideas together, um, and that was really it. You know, it was just um, they had a bit of success with "Love Is a Stranger." People hopefully noticed it visually. It was slightly different to you know um, yeah. what they produced in the past, and uh, and then they were still known as you know Dave and Annie from the Tourists. So the Eurythmics people couldn't you know couldn't pronounce it let alone see it written down you know so um so the, I, I did I created a kind of DNA palace script logo that we would use quite strongly to kind of hammer home the Dave and Annie vibe you know and but that stuck you know it was a very kind of um it was a pastiche of a kind of a, a CNA which was a kind of high street uh, established mm-hmm. sort of department store at the time and also um it looked it looked quite official as in a solicitor's office or a law firm the idea of a dna in a in a, in a kind of oval um yeah. you know used in a, in a printed in gold and on the palace script so <clears throat> so it was the kind of um again like a kind of um you know what bef were doing it's actually trying to push the business side of it you know you wore a suit and you were very kind of um uh, organized and you took care of the you know the business side of it and it was you know it was it was it was a kind of um smoke and mirrors kind of thing but it was actually and it did work for them because then through the fact that they were very two very strong personalities you know Eurythmics then took over from DNA and that became the, the focal point the name of the band and the kind of front of house really. Those early sleeve designs also seemed sort of very European to me very cool with the austere photography and lots of white space it was all very kind of effortlessly stylish. Yeah that, I mean that's I'm very pleased you say that because that's exactly what I wanted to push forward and, and exactly what Dave wanted to do musically you know it was a kind of uh, electro soul with the European feel you know it was um, just because it was you know you had a, a European vibe it didn't mean the lyrics you know you couldn't sing about love with the European um, backing track and style you know it was um, and they could also be quite uplifting although it was people thought as you said you know European was you know, Sons and Fascination period or, you know, um, Craftwork period, but they kind of lift it, you know, it was, it's, we were going to have a kind of electro-soul branding that Dave was thinking about at the time, which was really true, it really summed up what they were producing, you know, and, and my, you know, graphic influences were the whole, you know, were the usual, you know, from Bauhaus through to, you know, yeah, and Tishhold and the whole kind of vibe, and obviously, you know, Savile had yes. um, linked to those kind of feelings, but that's why I love the white space and the really austere kind of feel of um of graphics and you know just overly you know you know minimal typographic design you know which which actually at the time was was the kind of opposite to what you know Duran and culture club and those kind of bands were doing really yeah you know they were much more colorful and i used very little color you know it was really red black and gold and white which i used throughout the early sort of three or four years of the eurythmics kind of period you know and also the name you know eurythmics name was you know half of that those character forms are European, you know, Eurythmics was a, um, a European dance, you know, it was a, a teaching dance movement, you know, um, so that was, you know, Annie's idea of having that name, so it was kind of slightly European, but it was, it, there was a dance, it was, you know, dance involved in that name as well, which really, you know, summed up the European dance vibe in a way, you know. Can I just ask you a couple of questions about the technical aspects of how you're putting the artwork together? Because this is all pre-Apple Mac, so we were working with transfer lettering and cut up bits of paper and glue and stuff? Yeah, it was. I mean, I, you know, it was a, an extension of what I'd already started to create and work on at LCP, really. Um, 
uh, I just the the letter forms and the kind of uh, cut up letter forms. You know, even when you when I realised that you could go out and work with typesetters, they still couldn't produce what I wanted to produce. You know, I wanted to put you know an umlaut over an F or you know put a line through an E or something, and you couldn't. You know, then technically you couldn't do it. You know, everything was still, you know, the the you know metal press or hot press or even you know there were some you know photo or digital um, typesetters, but I wasn't aware of them, so I didn't know. You know, I mean, it was um, so I really worked on it with you know Letraset. There was a a series of drive transfer called Mechanorma, which was more graphic, I think, yes, really, which was well. slightly more expensive, which I really loved. You know, and I I remember. After a while, being able to get the Mechanorma trays in the office, you know, which I thought was just a fantastic system, you know. <laughs> you put all your dry letters and you could pull out them all alphabetically organised, you know. But um, but with the, with the earlier Unix stuff, it, you know, it was um, it was really just uh, transfer and letter set. I mean, rubbing down, you know, Palace script in, you know, 14-point Palace script as a letter set without any line breaks and just link it. It was, you know, it was yeah. a nightmare. It just, you know... Did your head in really, you know, trying to put dots over stuff and, you know, where there was a normally would be a, you know, a, a piker break or something, you'd put in a star or a forward slash. And so I, you know, I just, I wanted the typography to be designed as well and not just giving you the information. It had to give you the information in a, in the Eurythmic style. You know, it was actually all part of the design, everything, the positioning of the catalog number and, you know, the, the catalog number was in, you know, different typeface to the body text and, so I did what you know. I did work at that, and I, you know, I would. Um, I remember going back to LCP and using the um, uh, the PMT camera there in the in the dark room to you know size up and reduce you know stars and symbols, and then I would then paste that on top of my letter set, and then that would literally go as board artwork to um, to the art department at RCA. You know, so from the beginning, you were really fortunate to work with some amazing photographers, Peter Ashworth and Eric Watson, and. Oh, the list goes on, but uh, initially you were working with Louis... I can't, I can't pronounce his second name. Uh, Louis Jolek, yeah. He, yes, yeah, yeah. He was great, really great. He was... Well, he'd done a few shoots with um, uh, RCA before. They'd commissioned him on a number of other things, you know, but but he went on to do some great things. You know, he did some fantastic stuff for the Pogues as well, which some of those, you know, the um, he did the uh, fairy tale in New York single cover, which was just oh. fantastic, you know. So, um, but he... Um, you know, he was already commissioned to shoot the um, Love is a Stranger, which ended up being the Love is a Stranger and the Sweet Dream session. So, so it was literally, I, I, myself, Lewis and Dave and Annie, it was just us. There was no stylist or hair or makeup or, you know, um, n- no one else involved. You know, we, we shot it on studio in York Street, which is just off of Baker Street on a Sunday afternoon. And that was it. They just said, look, we need single cover for this and this go and sort it out you know it was I mean it was kind of scary but the freedom at the time was just amazing you just didn't you know realize how lucky you were really you know so um but it you know from from then on you know photography for me is such an important part of any design or package that I that I work on so it's um it's you know and I as you said I was incredibly lucky I would also you know mention that a lot of people in that 80s and 90s period or would always would kind of use rock and roll photographers you know Anton being the peak you know but um I kind of became a lot more interested in in fashion and fashion photography in that early 80s period so I would commission fashion photographers to shoot the artists or the bands that I was work that I was working with really um 
I, you know, um, because I like their work, and also a lot, you know, a lot of the, the um, artists that I were was were working with would have a, a were either you know solo female artists or they they would have a, a female singer in the band, you know. So it just it, I just felt it it worked slightly better, and also you didn't get a standard band photograph if you used a rock and roll photographer at that period, you know. So you're the singer, let's put you in the front because a lot of the bands that I worked with weren't really shot in musician mode they were creating other characters or they were stronger personalities in their own right so but I, you know within Eurythmics and obviously um going working with Annie's solo albums um I was very lucky to commission you know uh, you know quite you know very big and important photographers and also Andrew that's partly to do with budgets as well you know you think well we have a bigger bigger budget now and I would now like to use someone like of this stature you know so um, but I you know it was you know, I was very lucky to work with you know, Avedon and Mondino and Ellen Von Unworth and yeah. Bettina Reams and, you know, Nick Knight and David Lachapelle. I mean, I was really, you know, very, very lucky, you know. I think the difference yeah. with some, some of the earlier work that you were doing, I mean, you mentioned Malcolm Garrett earlier, and I think that you, you used photography in a, as a much more bold statement. You could always see Malcolm Garrett's graphic design all over Duran Duran's stuff. Yes, yeah. Club stuff. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you sort of paired your design right back to let the photography breathe, I think. I mean, particularly on something like the cover of Touch, where it yes. is principally yeah. it is that iconic photograph of Annie mm-hmm. isn't it, with the mask. Mm-hmm. And, and your, your graphic part of that is, is the lesser part of it, but it actually mm-hmm. makes the whole thing stronger. And I think, that, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's a good thing about good designers really they know when you've got when you've got the good recipe the good ingredients for the recipe you let that that you know do its work and there's yes. no point in yeah. putting graphics in there just for the sake of it. sake of it no I, I i agree i think in that in the early 80s and you know throughout the 80s really you know graphics became such a massive high street um style really so obviously a lot of things that you look back in that were overly designed just with graphic yes. identities and tools and you know yeah. but that was that era and i also without being too kind of pretentious i wanted you know I, I did feel that if these singles and albums were going to be successful they were going to lie around for 10 years well now it's 30 years but yeah. i wanted them still to look like classic album covers you know all the you know the bowie album covers which i kind of just you know lowered heroes and my two in my top 10 album covers of all time you know so just happens to be the same artist but i you know they still look amazing today and i really wanted to you know have that um I don't know the kind of the importance and the, the gravitas that those albums had. I felt that even though I was ostensibly working with pop acts, there's no need to make them look kind of throwaway and cheap. They could still have an importance yeah. and be um, be very strong in their own, you know, in their own visual identity. You know, and also you know that whole point of you're working, you know, obviously with your rhythms at that point, but that was sitting in between an ABC album, a Phil Collins album, a Police album, and a, you know, a Bowie album. I wanted it to have the strength of all those albums. It needed to stand out. You know, when you walk, you know, in those days you could go into HMV or Virgin and it was in, you know, the window displays and everything. And it just had, you know, the imagery had to look strong. You know, it was really important. And for me, that's photography, you know. And also with Annie at that point, her, she didn't look like anyone else. So, I, you know, the whole point was this, you know, you have a, an amazing looking woman, an amazing vocalist in this band. Let's use her. Her imagery is amazing. You know, just the way she looks, and that's that's enough. You know, so um, so my graphics were kind of, particularly in the typographic treatments with the, the touch album. On the reverse of that, I used again all my kind of cut up um, Tishfold letter forms. That that 
was on a completely white background, so all the colour was really on Ali's picture. You know, that was a commercial aspect of it. Yeah. And then the information and everything was, was still designed, but more knocked back. You know, I really did want the imagery to come to the fore. And, and throughout those Eurythmics albums, that really what, that's really what happened, you know. Then a bit later on in the Eurythmics career, you started using the very lush portraiture work of Eric Scott, didn't you? I mean, that was really uh, Dave's kind of idea. Eric Scott, who was the painter that um, produced that amazing portrait for the Revenge album, had been a friend with, um, a friend and a long-term friend with um, Dave when he was in Sunderland, as um, always Eric Scott was a young artist at the time and had gone on to paint some amazing, you know, portraits and a lot of musicians started to buy his work, you know. So, um, you know, I remember sitting there with Dave and Dave said, well, look, why don't we do, instead of it being another, you know, portrait of Annie on the front and myself on the back on the inside, why don't we do a, a, a duo together, you know. Um, and obviously with the title, they, you know, they both felt, I suppose, in the way that having at that point in their career that it was really, you know, a nice idea to have them both on the front of the album, you know, and, um, and where the title became part of the kind of jacket badge that Dave was wearing on the, on the front. So, and then we sat down and, and worked out actually, well, if, if Eric paints the, the main portrait, he could then do a side paintings for the three or four singles that we would then be releasing in the album's wake, you know, so it was a, it was a kind of concept album, really, because we knew exactly what was going to happen with those the single sleeves, um, and they were recording in Paris at the time, and Dave had an apartment there, so Eric set up his studio with his easel and stuff there, and would paint on a daily basis. So I was over there for a, about two or three weeks while we were putting the album together. So I'd go to the studio to do the recording, and then go back to. Dave's apartment in the end of the day, and you know Eric would be further on with the painting. So um, nowadays, you know, obviously someone would be filming that time lapse photography-wise, yeah. you know, to see it. But but um, it was fantastic. The end of the Eurythmics career saw the release of the Peace album, where you were really lucky to work with the photography of Richard Avedon. Can you tell me a bit about that period of work? Yeah, that was. Um, I mean, that was possibly the hardest. Uh, if you could say, you know, designing a, an album cover is, is is hard, but it was it was really difficult to work out how we were going to do it and you know what was going to be the outcome of that. Um, I'd had I had you know wanted to work with Avedon or Irving Penn for both Dave and Annie for a long time because I just felt that their importance and the gravitas of those photographers for for taking their portrait would be just amazing, you know. And I just think it, you know, within it would go beyond just music it would kind of go into an art more of an artistic field really because of their you know the importance of their photography so and we were really lucky to you know for you know Avedon to agree to um to shoot the, the session really so it, he, he looked at more of a session rather than I'm shooting the album cover so we did the we did the session in, the, in his studio in New York and we just shot and you know a series of um, images of, of Dave and Danny together and separately and and then the prints were sent back to me at the studio, and then I then had to work out what we were going to use for the um, the front cover of that of the album, you know. So, and it was really going back to what I was saying about the revenge painting. Really, it was actually, you know, how many more albums or images do we need of you know Annie on the front or Dave on the back or them together? How many more photographs do we need, you know? So, and I just kind of ended up. There were two images that you know, Avedon had shot, which were basically the backs of Dave and Annie's heads, which was just a kind of strange thing to do, but um, they were amongst the prints that he'd sent through to me. So, so I, you know, 
I suppose boldly mocked it up with Annie's head on the front and Dave's head on the back from behind and um, and started to lay out the Eurythmics logo and I reintroduced the red star which I'd used originally on touch and, and um, just it was a kind of the tail end of their you know that 12 13 year career really of this uh, album so um, and they you know they both really liked the idea and uh, and I kind of you know creatively felt that it was because of the positioning of them that they were if you open that sleeve up the fact is that they're, they're looking at each other through the body of the CD they're looking through the lyric and the booklet and everything at each other um, face to face rather than looking out at the the audience or the you know the customer or the public you know so um, but it was a bit it was what I meant it was hard work or nervous was that you know with Avedon's images which are just amazing you know they he'd sent me through the prints which he'd hand I'm, I'm sure it was an assistant but they'd been hand retouched then you know so um, and this was in 1999 so it was amazing to have that work because I as a student had really loved his work and you know a lot of the images that he'd you know the portraiture he created he'd now done this for David Annie with the rebate on the print and everything it was just it was amazing you know and I was very very nervous of actually placing type you know a lot of the sleeves that I had worked on for you and a lot of the other acts I worked for I try to keep the typography off of the picture of the image back to what you were saying I wanted the image to stand proud on its own you know without the need of a title or the logo and um, so then having to work with Avenant and just the, the greatest photographer in the world apart from Penn it was thinking crikey how am I gonna how am I gonna do this you know so um, so it was you know so I, I placed it very subtly to the left and right of Annie's head so and you know once it was released I got a a message from Norma Stevens, who was um, Richard Avedon's you know, right-hand person and PA at the time, and uh, she just said, "Oh, you know, Richard was quite intrigued to see what you were going to do, and was very happy with the result, which was just fantastic to hear. You know, it was uh, it was great. You know, really great. And then, unfortunately, uh, in 2002, two years later, he died. You know, so it was um, it was. Uh, I think you know, you know, it was uh, on a on a business side of it. I think David and they were very. It was an amazing thing to have, you know, not many artists, even the greatest artists in the world, you know, you know, Bowie and everyone else never got photographed by Richard Avedon. So they, that was a real coup for them to have that. So. so following that, Annie Lennox went solo and released the album called Diva. Um, this was quite a, a, another design departure for you, because from, from the sort of minimalism of the Eurythmics, you went into the lush colour photography and, and rendered Annie Lennox's uh, name uh, in, in handwriting yeah I mean it was um, I mean it was you know that was deliberate really it was you know more so on, on any side obviously trying to get away from what people perceived her being as a as Eurythmics as the artist in Eurythmics you know she was the singer in Eurythmics you know Eurythmics ostensibly wasn't just her it was Dave and Annie and the bands that they put together you know but, um, but she you know obviously as an artist she needed to break away you know this is you know She'd written every song on, you know, on Diva apart from um, Keep Young and Beautiful. But so I think it was just, it was, this is my project, you know, and I can, you know, when you're in, in bands, even in, you know, the greatest duos or, you know, you know, uh, the three piece bands that you always have to, you know, agree on stuff, you know, and I think Annie was, you know, this was freedom for her to break out of the suit and the whole, you know, that whole maybe slightly more austere European feel. So, um, but yeah, so it was amazing, you know, those images were photographed by a Japanese fashion photographer called Satoshi and we shot them at the Hackney Empire 
um, and I had this most amazing headdress, and the colours were just fantastic, you know, and it, was, it wasn't what people would expect a solo album to be. A lot of solo albums, or debut solo albums from successful artists that have left bands, when you look at the, you know, they kind of still look the same, you know, that they are, it looks like they've just been pulled out of the band and this is their, you know, solo project for a year or two years, you know, and um, I think any side of it was, this was making a much more of a stronger kind of statement, but, so it was a, a complete breakaway, and I think on, you know, graphically I had to then think about, well, this isn't, Eurythmic sleeve, this is a, an Annie Lennox sleeve and it needs to be a brand new artist. How would I approach it looking at the imagery, you know? So, um, and then hence that's why the, um, the hand drawn and the hand formed letters just came out of that, you know? It was really just Annie, the images were fantastic and it was just Annie was signing some kind of prints. I remember thinking, actually, maybe if she signed, if it looked like she'd signed the album, you know, it would look kind of cool, you know? It's, it's a personal thing, you know? It's a, a signature on that, so um, so I did a number of different versions. Um, thinking about it, I don't know why we didn't use Annie's. I don't think I don't think it was as strong enough against the the color or the background. So um, I just created you know her signature and then kind of developed a handwritten kind of font that would fit within the Annie Lennox signature. You know, so the letter forms were the same. But then for the follow up album, Medusa, you got rid of all of that color that you'd introduced and went back to black and white and went back to a more traditional style of photography and graphic design. But it, it worked really well for that project. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the um, again, that's you know, going back to what you discussed earlier, it was that was basically all from the the photographic imagery that Bettina Reams and other fashion photographer had had photographed these portraits of Annie and um, you know we were thinking of a really really strong portrait when, which was the first time I'd spoken to Annie about possibly getting Avedon or Irving Penn to shoot her portrait and um, it's so funny that we ended up doing that 10 years later with with the Eurythmics last album but um, I mean it was partly to do with Annie it had become so successful and um, you know she felt that herself I suppose you know she is Annie Lennox but people see her as Annie Lennox the artist you know I mean in a similar vein to I suppose Madonna and Beyonce today you know they are who they are that person but it becomes a stage name so it was actually you know having conversations with Annie Annie saying well actually I you know she you know she is the the product really so we ended up coming up with an idea of actually maybe writing the type across her face or across the imagery and then we decided to maybe why don't we stamp it, you know, and she was really up for it. I mean, that's another thing, you know, you create great imagery when you've got, you know, an artist or, you know, the, the person that you're working with is really open-minded and up for it because then they would, they they go for it. And also with Annie, as, you know, she's stated even now, the kind of the whole celebrity side of the industry is something that she was never, ever in, in, into at all. You know, she was, you know, and also didn't really understand you know you become successful because of the work you produce rather than just the fact you're a face on a magazine or on the television you know that's the whole so it was try. it was uh, that's you know kind of ahead of um, ahead of a time in a way that you know we ended up stamping it stamping her name on our own forehead you know and it was stamped it wasn't you know there's no digital photoshop dropping the letters on, on layers on it it was completely done again in an old I suppose what we used to do with the Unix of hand done. I got, I found a, an old typewriter at Portobello Road Market, and then typed out the Annie Lennox in different styles, you know, upper and lower, and lowercase with the spacing, and then got those letters, the rubber stamps made as a solo rubber stamp, and then individual 
letters on a piece of on individual dowling, which um, Kay Montana, who was the makeup artist, we sat and did some tests at, at his house and literally stamping it in the the ink pad and then stamping it on the forehead and across her face and different tests and so um, that's how that was created. You know, it was it was kind of like an art installation if you were yeah. if you filmed it. You know, so again, it was just you know trying to get away and to maybe shock a little bit, which I'm always up for. You know, it was something that we thought well actually you know it was the complete opposite to the pretty brightly coloured um, diva album. You know, so um, we did have there was a shot and if you recall, but there's a shot where we completely covered the face, which actually. I had tried to push for the cover, uh, for that to be the front cover, and uh, created the mock-up to that. But the the record company just said this is this is just too strong. And how's it? You know, how are they going to know it's Annie? And it had Annie Lennox written all over her face. It was just crazy. And on the early um, reducer uh, CD booklets, I used that shot on the inner on the one of the inner pages, uh, which was going to be on the front, but we we ended up having it on the in, in, inside of the booklet. Which you know some you know record company say always used to say to me. Do it on the inner sleeve, Lawrence, or put it on the inside, you know, like it was because no one's going to see it, you know. But actually, it's a kind of, it's a contradiction, really, because when you sit down, you've seen that front cover, you sit down, you open that booklet, that's actually a bigger shock because you then open it and something is revealed that you're not expecting, you know. So, so I, you know, I, I kind of like that and we, we'd always run with that. They say, oh, you could have the inner bag, don't worry about the front, you know, we're going to. We have to decide that the logos is big and blah blah blah, you know, which I would fight and fight. But then on the inside, they, they didn't realise they were giving me the freedom. So, um, so those images appeared on the inside, yeah. So this was a really busy period for you because while you were working on all the stuff with Annie Lennox and the Medusa campaign, you were also working with Morrissey on his album and a couple of singles, weren't you? I was, yeah. That was at the same at the same time at '94, yeah. So it was um, that was a you know kind of big, interesting year, you know, of working with you know at those. Point and they're two huge, you know, huge artists. But you just treat it as okay. This is another album, another single, you know. And the um, but the Morrissey thing was very interesting because it was, uh, you know, like everyone, it, I was a massive Smiths fan, and obviously was into his solo work. Which I, I mean, I, I am um, with all the artists that I've worked with. I mean, I, I was slightly not in awe of him, but the the importance of the. The, um, the myth of Morris. Yeah, I was going to say baggage, <laughs> the baggage, but it's the wrong word, you know. I mean, um, you know, it was interesting because with the work that I did with Eurythmics and with David Nanny, because I was there at the beginning, I, I was, which I was very lucky because it became successful, so we kind of stuck together as a team. So I, I grew with them. So it wasn't, you know, meeting David Nanny on a, on a daily basis. It was just it was what it was. But actually meeting Morrissey was, you know, I can only say it would be obviously meeting like meeting Iggy Pop or, or Bowie for me, you know. But meeting Morrissey had that crikey, you know. So um, uh, the record company just, you know, just, you know, sent some of my work to show him. I'm not sure if he'd even seen it, but I, I went and met with him and we had a kind of chat. And then the project just sort of took off from there. You know, he um, he kind of instigated a lot of it really himself. You know, I would produce stuff which he said, "Oh, this is really great, but why don't we do it like this?" You know, and which was basically. Everything like was, yeah, it was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, without being, yeah, and obviously I understand that, but it was, um, everything was just, you know, Times Roman, you know, it was, can we have it like this, and, um, but it, it was, it was a, a very, very interesting, you know, uh, kind of four-month project working with him, you know, and uh, the Southpaw Grammar was the last album that he had, the, the, um, actually the first and the last album that he did for RCA, he was only signed to them for it. 
for um, for that album for a two year period, and and it was at the point when RCA had just been bought out by BMG, which was the Bertelsmann Music Group, which was a big German conglomerate, and uh, and in Morrissey's Morrissey's world, that was you know he didn't like that, you know he didn't like any any um, German imprint on any of the legal lines or the copyright information or anything. So I had to go back and tell them that you know Morrissey doesn't want anything to say. You know Bertelsmann Music Group made in Germany on the on the on the copyright details, which was you know not that was to do with the design, but it actually did end up being part of the design because I put that information on the um, the inside spine on the back inlay. So if you take the tray out of the <laughs> CD on the inside, it then it gives you all the German Bertelsmann Music Group information, you know. And then he kind of said, look, I need it to say you know made in England on the back of the album cover on the twelve inch, which is what we did, you know. So um, which was a very Morrissey kind of thing to do, you know, which I. Which I did kind of like. It's funny because I have interviewed a couple of designers that have worked with Morrissey, and whilst they have their own very distinct styles, the work that they've done for Morrissey ended up looking exactly like every other Morrissey release. I mean, I was quite excited actually because at the time, because Apple Grammar, he he didn't want an image of himself on the album cover. So up up until that point, every other album cover, apart from the Smiths, um. Obviously, the Smiths had you know found imagery on them, but his own solo albums didn't have found imagery on it. it was image It was an image of himself, and so Southall Grammar was was kind of going back to a Smith's idea of a found image of this boxer that he'd found, and I kind of liked that. I felt this, without being derogatory to you know Morrissey Solicker, this was actually this was more of a Smith's vibe because we're using a found image rather than an image of Morrissey himself, you know. Um, so I kind of like that idea, but it just didn't, you know, it, the image he found actually didn't reproduce, you know, very well. It was just from an old boxing magazine. It was a tiny image, and we did the scan tests and reproduced it and printed the orange tint over it. And so the, just the quality of it wasn't strong enough for me. Hence, you know, that you know, going back to what you're saying about photography, the photography wasn't strong enough really. Um, and I did, you know, ten ten years later, read an interview in Q magazine when he was. You know, going through all his albums, and then, you know, he was saying, actually, I don't know what happened with that album. That's, you know, I wasn't very happy with the final result of that album, which was a bit ironic because he'd sort of said, this is, this is how I wanted to be, you know. And then I think maybe last year they he'd remastered all his um, solo albums, and he changed the cover on a number of them. He, on Southwell Grammar, he changed the cover of that and put put a picture of himself on the front. So <laughs> it was just a weird kind of thing. I mean, you know, I think that was. I didn't agree with that at all. You can't just, you can't rewrite history. I mean, that, the cover's the cover. You would, you know, oh, let's change, you know, heroes and put a, you know, a more up-to-date picture of Bowie on it. It's just, it's a nonsense. And I, you know, I, ha- you know, I have a lot of respect for Morrissey, but I thought, I thought that was disrespectful to his legacy and to what he'd produced. And I completely disagree with it. You know, I think that was really wrong. When I was doing my research for the article for Classic Pop, I also noticed there's an intriguing uh, design credit for you on these Morrissey releases. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, yeah, we, I'd, um, so I, you know, I'd, with all the albums that I work on, I end up, you know, I, you do the initial design and then I end up literally doing the finished artwork on it as well because I still think that's a creative process. You know, you can just resize stuff and move stuff around. And, and at that point in 94, I just got, you know, proper Max in the studio. So it was the first album, funny enough, actually thinking about it now, that I had designed solely on, on the Mac, you know. So, yeah. and I, you know, I, I sent Morrissey the credits and he, he changed a few of them and then he'd put a, a design and artwork credit 
for myself, and but, but artwork credit for myself, and then sent back and said, hey, what do you think of this? And he'd put uh, sleeve design, which was obviously myself and him, he put sleeve design by whores in retirement, which I just thought was was fantastic. I mean, he has used that line since, but uh, I thought that was great, you know, being, um, I quite like the idea of being a whore with Morrissey, if you're going to be one, and then one that's retired, you know. He might retire, but I haven't. But um, I thought that was great, yeah. It was a nice little um, kind of send-off for Morrissey, yeah. Looking back over your body of work, it's hard to pick out examples because there's such a such a massive range of material, but you designed the cover of the uh, Fairground Attraction album, didn't you? The the huge uh, breakthrough album that had the, the single Perfect on it. Yeah, we uh, First of a Million Kisses was the... Um, the big, their debut album, which actually, you know, won a, a Brit Award for Best New Band and, and Best New Album for that, the, that the first year that they released that, which was fantastic, you know, so that was really exciting, yeah, we did Perfect, which was the big single off of that, and then um, the first of the Million Kisses after that, so, and funny, there's a <clears throat> there's a link, because Mark Nevin, who was the the um, instigator of Fairground Attraction and the songwriter and the guitarist, um, who I'm still kind of in touch with, really, um, he worked on a couple of Morrissey's um, albums. I think he did Kill Uncle or Your Arsenal, I think. So, so um, you know, we there was a kind of connection there and we did speak about, you know, working with him and we had the same kind of, you know, and he, he would have to, just to, as an aside, he would write the, the lyrics to Morrissey, the, um, the music to Morrissey's lyrics, but they never met while they were writing and recording the album. So Mark would send Morrissey the cassettes of the music and then Morrissey would send him the lyrics back written down you know so this went back and forth cassettes and handwritten lyrics and stuff you know so which was just you know amazing when you think about it and then i remember mark he was living in camden at camden at the time which is the big you know that the whole brit pop era yeah. and morrissey was there living on um, prince of wales drive i think it was and uh mark said he was he left his house and he walked up the road to post the, the next three songs on a cassette, you know, the music, the backing tracks to Morrissey, and he was just going to put the envelope in the in the post box, and Morrissey walked past him, and Mark said, "Hey, Morrissey, Morrissey, you know, I'm, you know, it's Mark, you know, I'm working with you on this project," and and he said Morrissey was just very kind of cold and just kind of said, "Oh, hello, and how are you?" and and Mark said, "Well, I'm just going to post you these, you know, new backing tracks. Let me, you know, let me give them to you." And he just said, no, no, I, I prefer it if you posted it to me. So, which is a really weird, cold kind of aside. But, uh, but yeah, they were, um, Fragile Attraction were, you know, they just did, you know, it was a, a real sort of, you know, a burning out star. They did one great album that was number one and then they, they never released another album. You know, they did, they did a kind of B-sides and outtake album that I did for them. But, um, but yes, that, and again, that, uh, funny enough, that was a, a found image as well, the, the, the album was called The First of a Million Kisses, and I remember finding a, an Elliot Erwitt, Erwitt image of um, a couple kissing in a, an old car, and he'd photographed the reflection of them in the wing mirror of them kissing, and it just, to me, it just summed up the title of the album, you know. So again, the photography side of it was quite an important part, you know. As was your handwriting. Yeah, I just wrote, yeah, just kind of... Uh, that was, um, the idea for that was actually, you know, at the end of a letter, you would write love and kisses or, you know, big kiss or whatever it would be and I just thought you know if you wrote the first of a million kisses it meant that your relationship was going to last forever you know it wasn't just a, a small relationship just doing one kiss you're doing the first of a million kisses and we're going we're to be together for so long you know so and it just fitted that couple kissing on the front you know so um, I mean that you that, kind of, that was a 
a happy accident really. I mean, I was living in West Hampton and I walked past this newsagent daily and they would have those kind of just old postcards on a little turntable thing in the outside the shop, you know, you could, you know, postcards of London and famous images and stuff. And I just found that image there, you know, I don't know why it was there. It wasn't something that you would, you know, they'd have images of all sorts of, you know, James Dean and stuff, but it was just, uh, I just picked it up and thought, oh, sure, I could use that for something. And I just remember thinking, actually, I've got that image, that would fit perfectly, you know. I'm aware that you're a big fan of the graphic design of Vaughan Oliver, uh, the man responsible for the record covers of pretty much everything that's come from 4AD. Is he someone that you've ever worked with or that you've been in touch with at all about design? I did, I did um, a, a couple of uh, sleeves on Beggar's Banquet. I did, um, that's dreadful, I can't remember the name of the band, but I did a single which, this track was called IOU, which was, it was by Freeze, that was oh, it. Yeah, yeah. And it was quite a, a big hit at the time. And I just used, you know, again, uh, cut up kind of type, but actually I got that set and it was so, it was so nice not to have to, you know, use that, you know, the letter, letter set forms again, you know, and actually, and I remember taking it into Showbourne because the 4AD office on Alma Road was, you know, next door to Beggar's Banquet, you know, and I would go in and chat with him. And I'd, I did go and see him when I was wanting to, when actually when Beggar's Banquet were in Earl's Court, I went and met him and Ivo. And I remember actually, I remember giving Ivo my business card, <coughs> being a, you know, a good graphic design student, I'd actually produced some business cards, which I thought was what you needed to do. And, you know, Vaughan to me even then was like, oh my God, this is Vaughan Oliver, you know. And, you know, I don't think the pictures of the cocktail joint has been done then, you know. And um, and Ivo turning to Vaughan and saying, this is a proper graphic designer, why don't you have a business card, you know. And I'm thinking, if only you knew, that's just crap, you know, he's this, the guy you've got here, you know. So, but I did I did meet Vaughan, you know, we've, um, we do stay in, in touch just as friends, really, you know. And, uh, but I remember going in with the IOU sleeve and, him saying, God, you were only here last Tuesday or something. I said, yeah, but this is, you know, they needed this quickly. And, you know, talking to him about his work and realising that he, he would have sometimes four or five weeks just to come up with ideas for the for the albums, you know, and the sleeves, which, you know, if he had to, you know, with respect to him, if he had to produce something within a week, he maybe couldn't do it, you know. It was just actually, he had the, you know, he could rescan, photocopy, rescan, photocopy something. So it just, so you got that pattern or an effect that he was after you know you can't and um which you know and the work is you know the work was just great so we you know a lot of what you did in i suppose as a commercial graphic designer was it was you were problem solving you've got this budget and this time and this deadline and you have to stick to it you know so um but yeah i mean that you know you would you would dream to have a situation like that you know where you could just work with and every you know every act you know i mean they were the odd one that didn't kind of cut through, but you know most of those acts were just you know, and they're still important today. And also, you know, with Factory and Indie, um, Factory and 4AD, they built the indie market. That was yeah. it. They built that that whole genre, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm I was very pleased that that whole indie market, the genre, had you know two of the greatest designers, graphic designers, working for them. You know, as, yeah. as 4AD and Factory. You know, it was just wasn't just throw away rubbish it was really thought about design that went with that music but also it was it was more of it was more of just than just the music Andrew it was obviously for me it was the design you know that was such a massive part of it a huge part of it and the people that you met because of that design and that album cover and you go around people's houses or you go and stay at someone's house before you went out to the gig and you look through their record collection and you got to know a bit about them because of the albums they've got oh you've got the talking heads you've got that banshee's album and you then knew you were in 
like with like-minded people, you know. It's you know, it's all that, you know. It's just, um, but you know, it's. Uh, I know I completely understand that time moves on, and that's you know. But you know, bringing it back to you know, great music or great design. Great music, or great design is great music or great design, and it lasts forever. You know, it's not, you know, it's just. Uh, so um, you know, that's why we still do what we do. Yeah.